So welcome once again to another Coffee and Heroes podcast. Once again, we are hitting another creator interview this evening. So I always ask the question, why should you listen to this podcast? Well, today we're chatting with the creator who's responsible pretty much for introducing me personally to independent comics. You know, I started off very DC heavy as anybody who knows me and, and I still remain so. Uh, I am, of course, joined by Keith tonight. He's very Marvel heavy, but we both, we love a bit of indie comics these days. So, you know, I came across an indie comic years ago about a cop who could bite into food. And from that small taste alone, he knew where it had been grown, what pesticides were used in the soil, what the weather was like as it grew. And then this ability was used to help solve murders by, well, biting into a dead body, as you do. From there, it grew into a 60-issue epic involving a world recovering from a deadly avian flu, the banning of the consumption of chicken, and the speakeasy restaurants who would serve piping hot poultry on the side. Multiple food-related pars, a love story developing between our main character and a food critic whose reviews were so descriptive they were dangerous. And that's without even mentioning one of comics' greatest ever creations, Poyo. This is all from the world of Chew, a multiple award-winning title from artist Rob Gilroy and our guest today. Chew helped usher in a golden era for for image comics and arguably set the tone for creators to have complete freedom in the content and variety of their stories. Clearly, there was a market for every story. As well as Chew, our guest has worked for Aftershock, Wildstorm, Dynamite, Marvel, and even written for The Dark Knight himself's signature title, Detective Comics, with three Joker's artists, Jason Fabick, no less. These days, he's a semi-professional cat photographer, well, a Twitter cat photographer, and works on the sister title to Chew called Chew which just finished its first story arc, the first course due out in trade this January. So today we are talking to John Lehman. Thank you very much Hello. for joining us, sir. And how yeah, are you? Thanks for having me. How have you been keeping in this wonderful 2020? Uh, it's It's been a rough year. It's, uh, you know, my produ- productivity is a fraction of what it, um, what it once was. Uh, that being said, this week I finished a script, I finished a pitch, and I lettered some pages. So it's been a... It's been a really good week for me. You know, uh, it's always good to finish a script, but lately it feels like finishing a script is a triumph in a way that it didn't <laughs> used to be. You take these small wins where you can get them these days. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, exactly. Uh, you were saying, John, just before we just before we popped on, that you're in uh, you're in Phoenix. I'm a yeah. California boy, and I don't really recommend Phoenix. You know, if you come to the U.S., uh, you know, there's the Grand Canyon, which is beautiful, but there's not much more. And we used to be what was called a red state, which uh, politically, that's the, the Trump supporters. and the. Uh, but uh, surprise, surprise, this time around, we, we have turned into a blue state for, I guess, the first time since uh, 1953. So I'm, I'm a little less ashamed to live here. <laughs> Congratulations. <laughs> Definitely. So, I mean, with regard to, you know, the, the, the worldwide pandemic and lockdown, how have you kept yourself sane? Has it been lots of reading and TV? Yeah. Oh, you know, I didn't used to be a big TV watcher, and my wife and I don't tend to watch the same stuff. And I swear, uh, this year, I've watched more TV, and we've discovered more shows together. And uh, it's been it's been pretty great. And uh, then on the comic book side, it's been really weird because I, I've – I've been rereading all my favorites, uh, you know, like sort of the long time things on my bookshelf that I haven't read in a while. Uh, and then I've been reading a lot of Tintin for the first time and really enjoying it. Ah, the, the old Hergé's Adventures of Tintin. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, I know it's bigger in Europe. You know, Americans, the American audience tends to be pretty myopic. You know, they, they read uh, 
Marvel and DC and then American Indies. And, and we don't read a lot of stuff beyond America. And, uh, uh, I've really been enjoying just enjoying the hell out of Tintin. Uh, yeah, I mean, I was kind of in some ways was raised in Tintin. My uh, local library had had the whole collection of the the hardbacks, so uh, we would we used to go in and, and borrow them one after another. Um, well, the, the problem in the U.S. is they've got these reprints, but they're small. And my my old freaking eyes, man, you know, you've got these twenty panel pages; they're really hard to read. So I'm having to track down these old Edgemont hardcovers that are oversized. Yes. But they're you know, they were printed in like two thousand three. So uh-huh. you know, I, I keep a watch on Amazon and eBay and various booksellers for when one pops up and then then I read it and once I once I get them all I'm gonna read them all in order. But uh yeah it's it's in Tin Tin and E C and then just just the old stuff that's been on my shelf that I haven't read for years. Oh fantastic. I mean I uh we, we talk about this often, you know, we, we both have fairly chunky weekly pull lists mm-hmm. uh, and I'm always, uh, I'm always very jealous about anybody having a chance to go back to reread anything. Yeah. <laughs> well, know, I don't so. read a lot. Well, I don't read any Marvel these days, except I'll check in on Donny Cates and, uh, and immortal, immortal Hulk. And then, you know, I, I guess once you see the sausage being made long enough, a couple superhero titles a month are enough for me, and I tend to like check out what my friends are doing more than a character because there's nothing worse than, you know, hanging out with a buddy and they're like, "Hey, what do you think of my run on this?" And you're just like, <laughs> "Oh," you know. <laughs> so you know, you do that just to just so you can tell your friends, uh, you know, they're doing good work. But yeah, I've I've always been primarily an indie guy, and 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 it was weird because I I found this out when I was writing Batman. DC started offering me all kinds of stuff and it was great at first, but then I was falling behind on my indie stuff. And finally I realized, you know, I don't, I don't want to be, I don't know, Bendis or, or whoever the guy is that's writing five books right now. I mean, nothing against them. They're, they're, they're great and they love it, but uh, maybe one superhero at a time is enough for me. And lately DC has been throwing me little eight pagers of this or that character. And it's like, you know, that, that scratches my, superhero itch just fine and uh i'm happy doing my own little indie stuff and and oddball you know licensed work for hire yeah i suppose it's a good time for that with all the 80th anniversary specials and one shot specials that as you say they can you know get in great talent and they just let them explore that for eight ten pages at a time so yeah and it's fun you know i got to work on a swamp thing for eight pages and I got to work with Dennis Cowan who you know I I grew up on his stuff and like that was a thrill and then uh I don't know a few months ago I worked on a um a Huntress eight pager and I got to work with Cully Hamner who is not only you know a genius but he's he has been a buddy of mine for decades Mm -hmm. and it's just like you know oh you know I get to play with a friend uh uh you know so that that's that's been fun and in terms of that, I mean, have you always been into comics from a young age? You know, what was oh, it, was it yeah. primarily I, uh, Tintin okay. you read it uh, as a child? Shall we say? This this is going to age me, but I got my uh, I got my start in uh, 1977. You know, because this is this is pre DVR, this is pre DVD. You know, VHS. Uh, I loved Star Wars, and uh, you know, I at my age then, you know, you can press a button. My kid can press a button and watch any star wars movie at any time but you know i had to see it in the theater and then when it left the theater i couldn't see star wars again 
this is pre-home video. Mm. And uh, but at the local 7-Eleven, which is our convenience store, um, you know, you could buy a Star Wars comic once a month. So I could get my Jones of, you know, what's what's Han Solo doing now? You know, what's uh, Luke Skywalker? And so Star Wars, you know, wanting more Star Wars got me reading comics. And then I started reading things like Micronauts and ROM and Shogun Warriors. And then I started reading Marvel and, and DC and stuff like that. So, yeah, I've been reading comics since 77. And, you know, I decided really early on I wanted to be in comics and never, you know, never really wa- wavered from that. That's uh, that's that's normally whenever you're, you know, early on, you sort of you're back and forth on what you want to do. But you were. Yeah, you were straight no, in there. That, that, been like a focus and and now you know you have a year like this when you're like oh my god what have i done with my life <laughs> and uh whenever you mention it actually john uh you know i know you said you weren't a big a big marvel guy or a big dc guy but the uh the star wars title that marvel are producing at the minute is oh pretty, yeah oh, really fantastic god, yes. yes absolutely although i i tend to trade weight on that more uh and i and i i honestly trade weight more and more because i i my floppy stack piles up, and uh, and by the time I get around to reading the floppy, the trades come out anyways. And I also I have a hard time like keeping track of stories month to month. Yeah. And uh, so I will buy the floppies of my very good friends. Usually they're indie titles that I want to you know support you yes. know to keep alive. But um, like in the case of Star Wars, you know I can wait. You know. Uh, Marvel's pumping that stuff out, so you know I yeah. can I can wait for the trade on that stuff. But you're right; it's it's they've been phenomenal. They that really being have. said, there is a charm to the old the old stuff, which has also been a comfort food reread. Is reading the really old Marvel stuff from from my childhood um, <laughs> when they, when they're doing stuff between A New Hope and Empire strikes back and they're getting everything wrong and you know like luke is kissing the end every issue and, and it's like oh you know, that's um just when we're on the topic you haven't picked up on the mandalorian have you the tv show oh yeah yeah so i i haven't uh, you know I, I i watch it with my son every friday night and i'm on facebook today and everyone's bitching about like Everyone's bitching about spoilers, which I haven't actually seen any spoilers, but I've seen about 100 people bitching about spoilers. <laughs> well, so we'll say no real, more. We'll say no more. <laughs> got to be real cautious on Fridays. Yeah. But yeah, yeah, it's a good time to be a Star Trek fan. It's a good time to be a Star Wars fan. Um, yeah. yeah, it's a good time to be a nerd. It really is. It really is. It's it's no longer a dirty word. That's the thing. That's for damn sure. Yeah. <laughs> um. I mean, when you were you were saying like you knew very very early on that you wanted to you know get into comics and so forth. Was there ever that little light bulb moment? The one title you read that you thought this is what I want to do. This. Well, well, I you know this is weird because it 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 hasn't. I don't think aged well, nor has maybe the creator. But I was. Um, uh, Cerebus. Are you familiar with that? Mm-hmm, the, yeah. the 300 mm-hmm. issue. Cerebus got me wanting to do um, like my own independent title because here was Dave Sim doing something that he completely owned, completely controlled, and he was going to write a novel. Now, you could argue about how the novel turned out, but but he was um, in the 80s, he was a champion of, of creator owned stuff. 
And that was kind of my inspiration. I wanted my Cerebus, my novel that I owned and, you know, steered the destiny. I could play God and, you know, uh, that would be, you know, me creating a world. And that's what Chu turned out to be. I can absolutely, I can see the draw of that completely. You know, I can, you know, that, that sort of building your own world, creating your own rules for that world, your own physics, your own... In a more practical sense, Cerebus was like clockwork for 300 issues. It would get me into the comic book store at least once a month. I mean, usually I go, used to go once a week, but there were times when I was reading 20 comics, and there was times when I was reading one comic. But it was always, you know, Cerebus would always get me into the comic book store, and it, you know, it kept me sort of aware of what was going on, and, mm. you know, I just wanted my freaking Cerebus. Yeah. So that was my life. <laughs> Great, you know, and uh, I mean that, that's the thing, you know. That just when you talk about the comic book store and staying connected, that's that's one thing that that Alan does very well in Coffee and Heroes is create that community and keep us all together and keep us talking about comics yeah. and keep us yeah. up to date, you know. But I mean, with regard to your to your craft, John, did you did you go to writing school? Did you did you did you, did you go to school for your craft, or, okay. or was it a... again? I am old. <laughs> And, uh, like, you know, now you can actually talk to creators on Twitter. There's the Kubert School. There's, you know, there's conventions everywhere. I grew up in a small farm town in Northern California. And we had a real rinky-dink comic book store. But the real thing was maybe once a month you'd go to the mall in Sacramento, which was the big city. And, you know, you'd go to the mall and kind of walk around the mall looking for girls and, and all your friends are looking for records or, you know, whatever. And you'd be the nerd who's like, can we please stop by the comic book store? And uh, and then maybe once a year I'd get to San Francisco where there was a, you know, a, a comic convention. But you couldn't interact with, with kind of professionals and, and I didn't know how to do it. So I was a, I went to college and I was an English major just because that was writing, you know, I, I mean, I wanted to be a comic book writer. That was the, the closest thing I could do. And then after I graduated, uh, I spent a couple of years bumming around, uh, in the rock and roll scene, uh, trying to be a DJ and working at a record label. Uh, but I was seeing a girl who, um, who lived in San Diego and we were starting to, I don't know, guess, get a little serious. And she's like, well, why don't you come here? And I'm thinking, ooh, that's where that comic book convention is, right? And, uh, and so I moved <laughs> to San Diego. And I know you guys know what San Diego is and how big it is. But when I first moved there, it was you could park on the street, uh, which was a really dangerous neighborhood filled with you know, hookers and crackheads, you you worry about your car, and then you could run in, pay your five dollars, and see the entire show in the course of a uh, your lunch hour, which was my <laughs> first my first San Diego con. And you know, now it's just like multi billion dollar thing with a quarter million people. And you know, I've I uh until last year where everyone missed it, I had not missed a year until nineteen ninety one since nineteen ninety one. So I'd gone every single year and watched it you know blow up to this tiny you know weird indie scene to this like hollywood behemoth that it is now well i mean i think we can we can probably empathize in some ways because you know we're on the island of ireland and you know we we 
I guess the Dublin Comic Con would be the biggest, but it would no way compare to to San oh, Diego yeah. or anything like that. San you know, Diego so is, I I can't not go now. It's like it's like the end of the Killing Joke. Like I've gone too far to stop. <laughs> uh, but yeah. but for like the regular person, I I would say you have to go at least once to experience the spectacle. But then I would also say you're you're crazy to to go every year. But again, you know, I I'd had a what a 29 year record or something like that. Like I I you know I couldn't stop. The uh, the biggest I ever got to. Uh, I lived in Chicago for a year, uh, 1999 to 2000, and I got to the the Wizard World Comic Con in Chicago oh, that year. Yeah, I remember uh, but, those uh, in, in Rosemont. Um, uh-huh. The other thing is I, I have learned because, you know, San Diego has become so sort of routine to me over the years. The key, again, you know, I, I've gone, you know, this would not be for someone going for the first time. But the key for me is to stay off the show floor as much as possible. So you go, you do a couple signings, you do a couple panels, and the rest of the time you 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 have drinks with friends. You sit out by the pool. You you know you you go to a bar. Like San Diego is the actual show. The less you attend, the more pleasurable it is. After you've been going as long as I have, less is more. Yeah, I mean, I always look at San Diego these days as sort of the the movie and TV con. I. I have yeah, this impression yeah. maybe New York Comic Con is maybe more for the comic industry. Would would that be fair? No, no. no New York New York Con is is comic is San Diego San Diego East. You know they're both okay. they're all both the same giant entertainment complex monster that that it's not for comics anymore, but it's so big that even if twenty percent of it is for comics, you still have a. 40,000 person Comic Con, which is bigger than any other Comic Con. I mean, a lot of it's Hollywood, a lot of it's, you know, LARPing or Game of Thrones or furries. Like, it's got something for everybody, but it does have a lot of comics if you know where to find uh, it. Going, going back to your own career, I mean, you, you kicked off pretty much as an editor, I believe, for Wildstorm yeah. Comics mm-hmm. um, before making the full time jump to writing. And, and at that time, it was mainly for Marvel Comics. Was editing, was that a means to an end for just the goal yeah. of being a full time writer? So, so, again, I didn't know how to be in comics. And I moved to San Diego and I got a job kind of as, um, as like Jimmy Olsen at the, the local paper you know, delivering mail and, and doing freelance gigs. And, and I was like the, the weather page and stock chart boy. Um, but I also freelanced articles like music articles and then nerd stuff. Like when Judge Dredd had a Stallone movie, I would write about it because I knew what Judge Dredd did. No, nobody else did. When, uh, when Spawn had an HBO series, I'd write about that. And then when Comic-Con came to town, they they came to the one guy in the paper who knew about comics. Um, and maybe after about three or four years of doing that, uh, you're at the, you're at a newspaper. They always want the local angle and the local angle was Jim Lee's studio in La Jolla down the road. So, you know, call, call Jim Lee's studio and find out what's hot. You know, what's the new trend in comics, which I already knew, but after, you know, three or four years of interviewing the same people, they like knew what I. They knew I knew what I was talking about. So they offered me an assistant editor uh, job, and uh, and it led to an editor job. And then suddenly DC bought us, and I was magically a DC editor. And uh, and I think in those five years I edited, I don't know, close to two hundred books. Um, 
and a lot of really good stuff. Planetary, Authority, you know, work with Travis Charest and J. Scott Campbell and Kurt Busiek and Ron Mars and James Robinson and just uh, really sort of Warren Ellis, you know, learned how to do it. And then then there was a point because DC was a real bureaucracy when we were when we were Jim Lee's studio. Here's a, you know, late 20s or 30 something year old kid who's a multimillionaire who could just do whatever he wanted. And it was a blast. And then suddenly we're DC and we're like this 85 year old bureaucracy where, you know, everything's a meeting. Everything's got to be like, you know, triple checked in a form. And it um, it became a lot less fun. And I kind of knew what I was doing by then anyways. And it was like, well, it's it's time to go. You know, it's time to uh, jump into the deep end of the pool and, you know, start making comics. So uh, I think around 2001, 2002, I, I, I made the leap and then just started, uh, you know, pitching and doing comics of my own and, you know, work for hire. How, where you know how did the, the writing for Marvel come about? Uh, you know how did you find how did you find working from there for them relative to? You knew people, you know. Some somehow I had met Mike Martz. I think he probably came to one of our parties at San Diego, uh, you know, San Diego, and that that was a good thing. Spending five years as an editor, you got to know other editors, you got to know other writers, other other artists, um, and uh, I just got invited to a Bake Off, you know, which is where. Which is where what we call it when like four or five writers turn in a pitch, and I did a couple bake-offs, and I I I got a couple gigs. And I think the first major one I got was Gambit, um, and I didn't really like Gambit. I mean, he was such a '90s cheeseball character, <laughs> but I wasn't gonna say no to to writing the X-Men, you know, writing an X-Men character. And what was weird was during the course of writing Gambit. I sort of found the character and I sort of found the appeal and, you know, I am straight out a Gambit fan now. I know he seems cheesy, but I played him like, uh, basically like James Rockford as a superhero. Like he's a, and I don't know if you guys get that. It's an old, oh, yeah. you know, yeah. yeah, I show where, you know, he breaks the rules. He's charming, but you know, he's got some rough edges, you know, ultimately he means to do the right things, but he will, you know, he will, you know, break the law and take the easy way out to, to get what he wants. Um, and it, it became a really fun thing. And the thing about writing, um, you, you know, pitching, especially early on in your career, you want each gig to be a little better than the next. Mm. And, uh, you know, I had, I had, I had a good five year run before things kind of hit the skids for a while. What was weird was I there there came a point where I, the writing work was slowing down in comics, but a friend of mine got me video game work, and then suddenly video game work was coming, and I couldn't get I couldn't get low paying comic book work to save my life, but high paying video game work was just falling out of the sky, <laughs> um, and I had this bird flu cannibal idea that I was pitching to everybody and nobody wanted it. And um, there was a point where I took a really big video game gig uh, where I would be the lead writer. Actually, it was uh, it was the Marvel MMO with Bendis writing it. But Bendis was such a big name that, you know, he's not going to move and work, work in the studio. And I would. 
and this would I'd be working with Bendis every day and I'd be working on Marvel characters. This was my in with Marvel. Mm-hmm. Um, and the last couple comic book years had been rough. We just had a baby. Um, so we my wife quit her job and we moved from Seattle back to California. And then within like two months, Microsoft pulled the plug on the game. And suddenly I had made the biggest mistake of my life. Mm. Um, but I was still the lead writer on this generic superhero game, which eventually became Champions Online. Mm. And the thing about video games is it's very nomadic and everyone works until a game ships and then nearly everyone gets laid off and they just move on. So I knew I had about a 12, I had about a two year shelf life and I thought, well, I'm making more money than I've ever made in my life. I am going to, I'm going to show them all. I'm going to fund this stupid bird flu, you know, cannibal book that nobody wants and it won't sell. But when I, when I get laid off, I'll be able to take it to editors and be like, Hey, this is, this is what I've been working on hire me. And so the book that nobody wanted, Chew, I found Rob Guillory, took me about six months to find him. And I had a slush fund of money and I financed it. I paid for it and I owned it. And then, you know, shocking to everyone, including image, including me, uh, Chew suddenly took off and it, you know, everything changed Mm -hmm. after that. But there, there were no expectations. And I can remember I can remember when we announced it at a, like a San Francisco con, like a WonderCon. Image was all jazzed about these other books. And they're like, and we've got this book coming out. And we've got that book coming out. Oh, and we got this thing called Chew. <laughs> and, and it's funny because none of the big books they were hyping at the time you would remember right now. And it's just, it, it's weird that Chew hit like it was... We were, I think Rob Guillory and I were, and probably Image were in a state of shock for a really long time that it, it kind of connected as well as it did. Um, now, in retrospect, having like traveled the world and, you know, seen this thing in 12 different languages and all that sort of stuff, I didn't pitch this, but there is a universality to food that, you know, everyone can relate to this book you know everyone can relate to a delicious meal everyone can relate to being hungry to being grossed out by a bad meal like the kind of the concept of chew transcends you know cultures which you know had i pitched it a little better somebody might have picked it up (laughs) i think it's a much better sort of self-made success story though that you took that massive risk and and again, oh, yeah. it was yeah. editor to step to being a writer. Then it was video game sort of money, if you will, to lead to what you actually want to do and so forth. And it seemed like you had very much a detailed plan. I mean, with Chew, you were you were saying the idea, this cannibal avian flu book. Where did that idea even come from? You know, was there something that influenced that at all? It, it's a question I wish I had a better story for because I don't really... There, there was no, like, inspiration. What it was was an idea list of different gags like like the guy who can eat and get a psychic you know flash or the woman who can write about things that you can taste or you know oh you know a a chicken's being outlawed because of a bird flu and chicken dealers are selling eggs on the street corners but all of these all of these seem very limited like a like a saturday night live gag that's funny for the first minute and then there's five more minutes of it just doing the same thing 
But at some point that I don't know, I realized that the, the connective tissue was food. And if I took all these kind of dumb individual ideas and combined them to food, suddenly it became like a really like tapestry. And, uh, and so like all these little bad ideas slowly morphed into one really big limitless idea. Uh, so are you, uh, you a bit of a foodie yourself, John? Uh, my my wife is, and I've kind of become just because she's a really good cook and she likes stuff. But that being said, I could eat at Taco Bell every day and be, you know, I could be happy too. So, you know, I, I've got low standards. Does, does that mean that she was a co-creator of Chew? That you know, she she would be your yeah. go-to person for? I need a real. I need a line in this script. I'm like, I need a really elaborate, fancy-sounding, you know, chicken dish. And then she'd you know, go to her favorite restaurant and come back with, uh, you know, some crazy, you know, method of cooking I've never heard of. Uh, <laughs> what was weird was I went to, I think I went to Italy. I think it was our first international trip. And somehow the, the with our Italian publishers, they were con- they thought that because Tony Chu ate a bunch of gross stuff, I should eat a bunch of gross stuff. And like they were feeding me the weirdest, like, like you don't necessarily have to feed me gross stuff. Like I don't need that for research. <laughs> so they were feeding me lard and horse meat and all this other sort of crap. You know, I'm not Tony. Well, talking about co-creators, uh, obviously your, your co-creator, Rob Gallery, we're, we're huge fans of him as an artist and we're really enjoying Farmhand. How did you guys initially meet? Well, so I, I had a budget and I just put the word out to my friends, which is kind of a mistake because they'll if you have if you're friends with someone in comics, you know, they want to get you work and maybe there's a guy who needs to pay the rent. So they would oh, check out this guy. And like this guy would be absolutely horrible for it. And, you know, so much of it was just me telling my friends, no, this this person's not right. And they'd be like, well, he's a really good dude. And uh, Rob Guillory was was recommended by a friend. And I looked at his stuff, and he was doing a manga book for Tokyo Pop. And I'm like, I don't want a manga artist. And like, no, no, this, this guy's really versatile. So I called him up, and, and I was describing Chu as sort of vertigo, vertigo-esque at the time. And so he delivered a page it was all really scratchy and atmospheric and looked like, you know, like Guy Davis, which I love Guy Davis, but not necessarily for Chew. And I came back and I'm like, uh, you know, nice meeting you, Rob Guillory, but I don't think you're the guy. And like I pointed out on the website, his website, I'm like, look, you do all these like cartoony stuff here. Why are you why are you, you know, ripping off Guy Davis? And he's like, well, you said it was a vertigo book. <laughs> Everyone always tells me to draw like this guy or, you know, draw like Mignola, draw like so-and-so, you know, no one ever told me to, to draw like my, or he's, he, everyone tells me to draw like somebody. I'm like, well, who's this, what, what's this cartoony stuff? And he's like, that's me. And I'm like, dude, draw like you. That's what I want. Awesome. And, uh, and it kind of opened up things for him. And, and the other thing is I, while I described it as a vertigo book, like, I didn't want you to be grossed out by it. Like I like books that are fun. Like I like horror books, but I don't want to do it myself. You know, I want you to be able to giggle while he's eating gross stuff, not like be repelled. Mm. And I also think I also think that helped you because we were a very accessible book and 
it's it's because this cartoony artwork kind of offset the you know the kind of the, the sometimes awfulness of the the content and uh and so rob you know started getting to be rob you know it, it worked out really well and and rob you know is also a really hard worker he's really he's really dedicated and uh and i'm a bit of a lazy person like if i can if i can cut corners or not work i i will do that rob you know he was he was nearly a monthly guy you know maybe maybe you know maybe a book every 35 days as lazy as i am i don't want somebody to to starve because of me uh you know because i don't have script for them so rob kept me honest you know when when rob got to about page 13 i'm like oh shit you know i'm you know i'm a week or so away from 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 rob starving unless i get him another book so he kept me mm. you know on the treadmill turning out, out scripts and uh you know chew came out you know more or less 10 issues a year which is you know great for an indie book sounds like a fantastic synergy between the two of you yeah and the other thing is you know i said i wanted my cerebus so as soon as we sort of realized wow chew is like this surprise hit we can go as long as we want i i looked at my favorite books from sort of a like in like like i kind of deconstructed you know the the structure the architecture of of my favorite books, which are Preacher and Why the Last Man and Transmet and Scalped. And they were all about 60 issues. And it seemed like 60 issues was the good length to write a novel that didn't get all, you know, like like up its own ass in being pretentious. And, and like 60 issues seemed like the perfect length to not get self-indulgent, to be able to tell still a sweeping epic story. So, you know, I knew the ending. I knew the story. So I basically sat down and figured out if I could do it in any length of time, and it looks like I can, what am I going to do? And so Rob and I decided on uh, roughly five to six years and, and 60 issues. And we ended up going, you know, 64 when you counted the Pollo specials and the revi- revival specials. But, you know, 60 issues in this market, pretty amazing. And that's also some pretty exceptional company you're in with there as well. You know, the, yeah. you know, and you can talk about those titles in the same breath because, you know, Why the Last Man is, you know, my personal favorite comic of all time. You is know, it really? Oh, I absolutely adore it. So it's uh, that's it's nice to know that, you know, it was a similar idea that you had in mind, you know, that, that length of a title. It must have been incredibly, you know, it must have been incredibly great to have that amount of freedom because you had self-financed it at the start. Did you guys pitch it to, mid- to multiple places or did you just go straight to image because you thought this well, is probably where the book would do best? I, again, you know, at first I needed a rate before I had the video game job. So I was pitching it to places who said no. And I eventually called up Eric Stevenson, who I, you know, I've been in comics for, you know, 12 years at that point. You know, I, I knew him well enough to call him. And, uh, you know, this was pre-Walking Dead days and pre-Saga and, you know, uh, image wasn't as gangbusters at the time. And, and, and I asked Eric, you know, do you know of any artists? He's like, no, but I like the concept, find an artist for this book and we'll publish it. And it's funny because after pitching it to all these places and I pitched it to vertigo again and again, like every time there was a new editor, I'd try to pitch it to vertigo. I didn't even really go to image to pitch it. I just went for artist advice and they approved it. So then it was a matter of finding the right artist. And then I didn't have to be the bad guy. I could tell Rob, you know, hey, man, 
you're the guy, but if Image doesn't like you, I'm cutting you loose. You know, I'm going to find someone they will approve. And uh, and it all worked out. You know, whenever you're talking about uh, yourself and, and Rob working together there, I mean, would you guys come up with ideas together, craft the word together, or was it key of, of you both staying in your, no, own, it was, your own lanes? No, it was, it was me. I mean, I don't want to diminish Rob's contributions but but you know he was he was a design wizard and one of the things i learned from rob was and and he said he didn't want to do an ongoing because he would get bored and i think he he would have gotten bored if it was just spider-man you know web webbing somebody different every episode but you know chew chew really ran the gamut of really different stuff and part of it was me you know challenging rob but no, I, I had the whole story planned. And, you know, every once in a while I'd be like, hey, you know, we because we, I always knew the soap opera. You know, I knew where the characters were going to be at the beginning and end of every issue. And I'd even write like the beginning and end and still not have the middle. Like, oh, Rob, you know, I've written 10 pages of the book. And he's like, well, what's it about? I have no <laughs> idea. <laughs> and. You know, sometimes I would need some goofy villain and then Rob would show up and be like, you know, what about this? Especially as it as it went on. But in general, it was my sort of vision for the story. And then you were saying again about the it, it has become such a massive success, you know, 12 different languages available in single issues, trades, hardcovers, the equivalent of yeah. absolute editions. I mean, was that all beyond your wildest expectations, I would oh. imagine? For sure, for sure. And I mean, one of the coolest things that ever happened, I mean, A, we won Eisner's. I mean, that's that's the, the award at the top of the, you know, the top of the industry. You know, I'm a, you know, I'm, I'm a hack. You know, how, how did that happen? <laughs> uh, uh, but we teamed up with, uh, with uh, some fans that also, you know, created merchandise called Skeleton Crew. Yep. And suddenly we were getting like, you know, statues and vinyl figures and stuffed animals. And, uh, and I mean, that was amazing. And then, and this, this was still going on up until COVID. I did the lettering and I did the production. So I kept all the files. So when France was doing volume eight, they'd be like, you know, Hey, we need the files. I'd be like, well, here you go. By the way, if you ever want me to come to France, I'm happy to. Um, and so, one of the another thing that's been beyond my wildest dreams is uh, is just traveling the world, you know, going to all these shows because like Rob is very business oriented. And if you're a if you're an artist, you can sit there and earn earn hundreds of pounds or dollars drawing commissions. If you're a writer, you're selling ten dollar books or fifteen dollar books. So, you know, an artist comes away with a, a good, hardworking artist that isn't pissing everything away at the pub. They come away with thousands of dollars. I come away with a few hundred, which I'm still grateful for. But if I'm going to make a few hundred dollars at a con, make it in Dublin, not Detroit. You know. Mm -hmm. uh, so you know, I've I've been taking advantage of all the kind of the life experience that come that comes with this, and I'll always, you know, stay two or three extra days and actually like you know travel. And even if that's on my own dime, you get me there. You know, you do the show. And then schedule my flight three days later so I can, you know, travel around. So I've, I've really been, I, I spent the last six or seven years just traveling the world and it's been utterly amazing. And now I've been stuck at home for the last year. Yeah. Well, I'll tell you what, uh, John, if you ever make it over this way, we'll definitely look after you. 
yeah, definitely. But I mean, with regard to that, where's uh, where's where's your where's your favorite place that you've you've been as a result of your your comic success? I, I have loved them all. I uh, will say the two most beautiful places I've been were New Zealand and Ireland. Uh, but you know, I I've even been to like some scary places. Like like I've I've been to India three times at this point. You have to have a real sense of adventure, you know, to you know, there's a real crush of people and there's a lot of poverty and 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 humidity and bugs and, and it can be a bit scary, but I would go at the drop of a hat. Mm-hmm. And you know, I've been to Poland, which is, you know, kind of it, it's kind of half Europe and half Eastern Europe. And uh but I just I just love the traveling and the experience and you know, if I end up in a hotel with a with bad Wi Fi and a rickety bed, you know, that's that's just part of the adventure. <laughs> that's interesting. Uh, myself and my, my partner, we were planning a trip to India just before just before COVID hit. So uh, yeah. I might hit you up for some knowledge there, John. But <laughs> oh yeah, absolutely. I mean, it, the great thing is you you go to a show and and sometimes the places like India, they treat you like every con has been great. I've only had one bad con experience in my life, but in India. They treat, you know, they want you to come away and tell people how great India is. So they treat you like a rock star. And, you know, it's nice to go to, to Dice and, you know, have the organizer buy you, you know, a pint or two. But, I mean, you go to some of these countries and they treat you like a god. Mm. And I'm not a god, but, you know, I'm not going to tell them if they want to treat me, you know, like I'm, you know, Mick Jagger or something. <laughs> You you certainly don't have to name the place, but it sounds like there's an interesting story behind that one bad con. Oh, uh, Canada. Oh, well, that was quick. (laughs) And and it's weird because, you know, Canada are supposed to be the the nicest convention, you know, the nicest people in the world. And, uh, oh, my God, I went to a Canadian convention. They just treated me like shit. (laughs) Uh, That being said, I I, and I hadn't been since, but I went to Niagara Falls. last year and it kind of made up for it so canada's yeah. forgiven yeah. good glad to hear it glad to hear it so chew is one of those books that sort of alongside the walking dead sort of helped establish what we would refer to now as the image model you know that being release a complete arc of single issues then release the trades take a break between the arcs let the creative team get ahead well i don't let- think walking dead ever took a break well well that's a fair point that's a fair I point think, i think it's more fair to say the saga model uh, because Saga did that more than, you know, because Charlie Adlard was a machine, and so Walking Dead just kept going. But yeah, uh, I think we, I, and I even think Image calls it the Saga model, and we created the Saga model before the Saga model. Saga just <laughs> sold a, a trillion more copies. Chew, we had a flatter, but basically it was two guys. You know, Rob, Rob penciled everything, inked everything, colored everything after he had flats, and then... You know, I wrote it, lettered it, did all the production and and the design, and you know the the two of us, you know, fired off a, a finished product to Image. And Marvel can do twelve issues of Wolverine a year because they've got ink, ink, inkers and pencilers and colorists and editors and assistant editors. And if someone falls behind, they get a a guest penciler. But uh, you know, it's exhausting work. And mm. so by the time we reached issue sixty, you know, I I. I said Rob has a really good work ethic. He's like, "Hey, what are we doing next?" And I'm like, "Dude, I'm not doing anything for months." <laughs> and that I think that's how Farmhand happened because Rob, a Rob's younger than me, and he's got three kids and more energy, you know, more more mouths to feed, and just 
you know, more ambition. So he, he jumped into farmhand while I was traveling the world. Uh, and so I lost him, but yeah, I mean, 60 issues, uh, by the time we got to the finish line, man, I just needed to lay down in a bed and look up the ceiling for like two months. Uh, I, get, I, get. I mean, did that, did that pressure come from image? Did that pressure come from yourselves? I, I think most of it came from ourselves. I mean, like I said, Rob Rob was the guy who was running fast on the hamster wheel, so I had to keep up. But when we did slow down, Image would remind us, you you, you go off schedule, you lose sales. I mean, there, there's a monetary thing to consider. And I mean, certainly with the success of Chew, you know, in the comic book medium, it inevitably leads to interest from Hollywood, TV studios, you know. As someone who followed you from the start, I would always keep an eye out for announcements, whether it would be possibility of a live action show, possibility of, you know, an well, animated show. An eye out again, because we're back. Stuff is going on behind the scenes again. <laughs> like we've been on the treadmill, I think, three or four times and uh, it reverted back to me in July. And then suddenly, like the memo went out around Hollywood mm-hmm. and I started getting calls so there there is stuff i can't talk about going on right now hopefully you'll hear about it the first part of 2021 but yeah i mean we've been we've been a a showtime show we were a cartoon we were at amazon like i don't know how anything gets made in hollywood it's a it's an i mean it my 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 the thing i tell myself is it took preacher 15 years to get on the air but of course as soon as it did steve dylan dropped dead so with my luck, I'll be the guy who uh, drops dead when uh, when Jew finally gets on the air. Touch wood, John. Touch wood. <laughs> well, that was it. My my next question was literally going to be how close have you come to adapting it? But you know, th- there did seem to be quite a lot of false starts. It seemed like it was, as you say, it was ready to go. It was the announcements were there, and then it just it just drifted away. I mean, that must be frustrating in in many many ways. Yes and no. I mean, I'm a comic book writer, and that's my a lot of people want to be hollywood writers and and they use their their comic book thing as a springboard to get to hollywood and to me you know i got what i wanted you know i got my comic book you know uh when and if hollywood happens that's just gravy but i'm not really gonna sweat it because uh you know i'm a comic book guy yeah i mean my my hope is always I don't always need a live action adaptation. You know, I, I spoke earlier about why The Last Man, for example, it's currently being turned into a show. The first yeah. thing they did was drop The Last Man from the title and it's now just called Why? And you're thinking, why are you changing these things? But I don't really need a live action show for Why The Last Man. That story's perfect as it is. And I feel kind of the same way about Chew. But the one thing I well, would say you know, that... anything is going to be an adaptation. Yeah. And to me, like, if you really want Chew, here's the comic. Yeah. You know, if you, if you want a live action or, or animated adaptation, you know, unless I'm involved, which I'd like to be, uh, and, and no matter what, you know, there's a lot of, there's a lot of cooks in the Hollywood kitchen and, you know, with Chew, it was Rob Guillory and I, like, I can't draw. Uh, so this is as pure a, this is as pure as something that's all me as possible. You know, it couldn't be all me. So it's, it's, it's me and a partner. Yeah, I mean, my my one hope is always that if it does get made, that it brings eyes to the original source material. Sure. Yep. That yeah. that yeah that is always because at this point, Chew's been over. I mean, the 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 first series ended in 2016, and and 
blessedly it's still kind of evergreen like i'm still getting royalty checks it's like oh my god people are still discovering this book that being said if if we got media interest a lot of people would discover the book you know as, as cool as it's been working with skeleton crew you know getting the you know the little action you know the little vinyl toys and stuff like to have actual action figures that would be awesome. Like have little toys of your, your stuff on the shelves. I would love it. I can see the excitement on your face whenever you're talking about this. Just the idea of it, yeah. Well, one thing that uh, you know, a, a, an adaption probably wouldn't be able to do the way you guys have is the amount of Easter eggs that are in the background of Chew. Yeah. I mean, it's one of our favorite things. Uh, you know, references to Lost, Jane, Silent Bob, Sesame Street, even even you and Rob making your way into at a comic convention. Yeah. Um, are those are those Rob's ideas? Do you write those in and ask Rob to no, do them as a combination? Of stuff, most of the little stuff was Rob being bored. And, and, and I don't think it was in like the first maybe five or eight issues. And he started he started doing it just because, you know, I think he was getting loopy after tw- 12 hours at the, the drawing board. And then people really liked it. And uh, I'm like, you know, Rob, go to town. And it would be funny because I would get, um, I'd get low res pages from Rob. You know, he'd finish a page and give it to me in like 72 DPI so I could letter it. By the time it came in with color, we're racing the clock and we're racing deadlines to get the issue out. So the issue would come out and somebody would be like, oh, that Lost Boys gag in the new issue was so funny. And I'm like, I have no no idea what you're talking about. <laughs> yeah, I mean, speaking of Lost, for example, you know, the respect was obviously mutual, you know, and I don't know if you've watched Lost at all, but in the last season, Sawyer and Miles were put together oh, as cops. Yeah. And yeah, he, I think yeah. even Damon Lindelof said it was a live action nod to Tony and Colby. You must have you must have got a kick out of that. Yeah, you know, that that's another sort of weird dream crump come true-ish thing, like like certain like Mark Hamill, you know, Luke Skywalker tweeted about how he was reading Chew and, and loving it. And I, I have, you know, met various celebrities because of Chew. And it's really, you know, it's freaky. Uh, you know, when you find these people that, that, that you've worshipped, like Robin Williams was supposed to be in the cartoon, allegedly, because, you know, a couple of iterations back, because he loved Chew. And it's like, it's just amazing that, again, I'm just some dude and then, you know, you've got these godlike celebrities who actually like like your stuff. It's crazy. <laughs> you know, you went on and you created Outer Darkness with Afu Chan, uh, which is another great mix of oh. humor and sci-fi and horror. Yeah, this, how, is, this is where I start crying. How did that experience compare to Chew, shorter run, 12 issues, the three-issue crossover? Well, it, it wasn't supposed to be 12 issues. It was supposed to be my next novel. And it got cut off because of sales. And... Uh, had I done it myself rather than going through a, a, a company, uh, it would still be going on. You know, everything's a lesson learned in comics, but Outer Darkness was a real tough lesson because uh, I loved it as much, if not more, than Chew. And it's gone. It'll never be back. And I can't do anything about it. Oh, we, didn't, we didn't mean to bring tears to your eyes, Joan. Sorry. Yeah. Well, you know, uh, every... Every good story has got to have its ups and yeah. downs. That that is a down. But boy, Afu Chan, he was a genius. And I just, and I, you know, I don't know if um, I don't know if he was too far of a house style from for from other Skybound stuff. But every page I got, and the more I looked at it, the more stuff. There's just such an an economy of line where where he could do so much with so little. 
like you know they he just really clean simple lines and they were just perfect oh god i, I love afu like i i, I don't I, I mean i've worked with some really great people and you know rob and i had a great partnership but man i i can't think of an artist i loved working with more than afu chan the guys in the shop totally take the piss out of me because you know clean lines is my thing you know they're like clean lines keith clean lines so so <laughs> I, I get you i absolutely get you but yeah, that was a. Uh, I didn't think. I didn't think. I, I knew that you know it's it's always a tough time for comics, and I thought, all right, maybe we won't go the full run. But I thought they'd say, hey, you know, we got to wrap it up. You know, here's here's one final arc, or here's a few more issues, or you know, hey, rewrite these last things to sort of tie things together, and. Uh, uh, because at this point now, I, I can't even recommend it. You know, hey, you want to read a really great book with no ending? No. It makes me sad. So I suppose I it was... I probably said more than Skybound wants me to, and they're going to be <laughs> pissed at me. Uh, they were pissed when uh, they canceled it, and I got online. I'm like, I'm so sad it ended. They're like, shut up. <laughs> you just like, give me the rights back then, and I don't have to be sad about it. <laughs> You know, I, I knew what I was going into. They they didn't do anything they didn't have the right to. You know, and they 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 have a different uh, metric for sales. You know, and especially put next to Walking Dead. You know, oh hey, it's not selling like what Walking Dead is. And it's like, yeah, well, well, what does? So you know, a lesson learned. And you know, one of the reasons I went with a company because I thought it would be less work. You know, after Chew, I really wanted an editor and someone dealing with all the printer bullshit and all that sort of stuff. And uh, uh, I guess if there's something, something really big that I love, I have to keep it closer in the future. And I will. I suppose then it must have been bittersweet working with both Rob and Afu on the three issue mini, the crossover. I didn't know the book was ending at that point. Oh, really? Um, Oh, I thought uh, that was a case of you were given that to, to wrap up the book a little bit. No. Oh man, that sucks. It was written way early on, and my idea for Outer Darkness was between every arc, there would be some sort of special with a different artist. So it was actually written for Rob, not Afu. And then they're like, no, we want Outer Darkness to build its own audience, and we'll do it after the second arc. And it's like, eh, not my favorite thing, but you know, I'm not going to... I just wanted to be published. I don't know how the, you know, I come up with weird ideas and then I thought I'd, you know, combine it and have it be a jam thing. And, you know, it, it, it turned out real well. But yeah, it's, uh, had I known that it would have been the end, I would have done some some rewriting to make it more of an end. Uh, of because you really should read it between the first and second Outer Darknesses. Uh, but it, it was fun to see Rob, um, you know, it was, you know, we fell back into our old grooves. You know, you know, he's he's done you know twelve hundred pages of Tony and Colby. So, you know, it it was it was <laughs> like getting the band back together. And then you had the bonus of seeing this genius artist do his interpretation of uh, you know of your characters. Fantastic. Well, let's uh, let's change gear into something a wee bit happier then, John. Um, chew with a U, the new Chew. Uh, why the desire to revisit uh, again it's sort of a comfort factor you know like Chew was so popular and you know sort of sort of is my greatest creation uh, that, that I don't want to leave the world forever and I needed a break after issue 60 but like I'm so used to coming up with the Chew ideas that you know they came back to me and I really wanted to 
I wanted to, to do something different. Like I didn't want to just do case files of Tony and Chu. Uh, so I wanted to find a reason to return to the universe, but do something completely different. And it took a long time out, you know, rather than do a, a cop comic about food, do the flip side, you know, do a, a crime comic about food. And then Rob wasn't available because of, uh, you know, I, 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 waited too long and he, he was doing farmhand and farmhand had a had a tv deal and you know it was nice seeing rob kind of graduate to his own thing but i had to find somebody else and it took me took me a better part of a year to find dan boltwood and i went to um you know i was asking all my friends just like i did uh originally when i did chew and i went to a manchester con uh i don't know a year and a half ago two years ago and the organizer, John Scalides, said, check out these guys. And I checked out Dan Boltwood, and he, he sent me some designs and some pages. And it's like, this is the guy. You know, he's got the same kind of energy and fun. And it's like Rob, but it's also not, he's not ripped. Because I tried a, a few people out, and a lot of them just tried to do their interpretation of Rob Guillory. And I, I wanted someone to kind of, step outside Rob's shadow and do his own thing, his or her thing, it became Dan. Now, that being said, I also, like, I don't want to do 60 issues in a row again, and I don't have a novel in my head like I did with Chew. So Saffron, the sister, this is just, I will return, like, it's going to be like the Hellboy thing, minis now. They're going to be self-contained minis that just kind of return to the world with a new, you know, caper or case. You know, probably do about one a year. And I don't mean for this to sound cynical, but, but I mean, choose the biggest thing I've ever done. Uh, you want to keep the brand alive. You know, not only do I have the creative uh, impetus to do this, but there's also a, a financial thing. You know, I, I do chew with a U. People new to comics are going to discover it, and then they're going to discover, you know, chew, C-H-E-W. Leave the old chew untouched for too long, and people will forget about it. So this is just a way of, you know, having fun in the universe and introducing it to new people. Yeah, and uh, I mean, you're talking about keeping the brand alive. I've, I've heard it referred to now as the the universe. Yes, yes, <laughs> I, I, I quite like that. Although that's, that, I didn't invent that. But yeah, I'll, I'll embrace it. I mean, I'm sure it's, I'm sure it's strange, you know, obviously working with the different artists and so forth. I mean, does Rob ever chime in with any advice towards you regarding it? Because it's, it's kind of his baby as well, or is he just very well, farmhand the, the focused first mini was i mean rob it was nice because rob did variant covers for every issue but it's really a launching pad like the next arc uh other than the grandfather character who only appeared in like three panels of the first book it's all new characters mm -hmm. so really the first mini sort of kind of dovetails out of the first chew book but by the second mini you know it, it's really going to emerge as its own thing so, you know, I send Rob every issue, but um, he hasn't really offered me any feedback other than he really likes Dan's work. So he'll be like, oh, you know, Dan's, you know, page three looks great or, or whatever. And it's it was nice. I did, you know, seek out Rob's blessing to make sure that, um, you know, I, I wouldn't use an artist that he hated. Uh, and it was nice because I just discovered Dan, but Rob had known who he was for years. And he's like, oh, yeah, I've loved this guy's stuff for, you know, a decade. So fantastic. Uh, Lovely. And 
and you guys were a team for so long on on, on original chew you know you with you as the, the writer do you ever have the option to to pitch in anything to to rob's farmhand project or does he welcome that or i don't know if i should say this but i will uh uh, we have, we have, you know, we did that Chew Revival, Revival Chew mm -hmm. uh, book, and we don't have it on schedule. It's not written, but I've, I've told him I would love to do a Chew Farmhand, you know, C H E W uh, crossover with him. That's a flip book that's Farmhand Chew C H U with with Dan, uh, and it's never passed beyond the hey, let's do this kind of thing. But I think it would be a lot of fun. <laughs> you know, that's have, that's have awesome. With Rob, where Tony comes in to solve some farmhanded crime, and then over and have a different story where Saffron is you know, perpetrating a food uh, farmhand-related crime. I think it'd be great. <laughs> I'd love your comparison. You know, if, if Chew was was Breaking Bad, then Chew is is Better Call Saul. Were those two series an influence on your decision to revisit the world, or uh, no? It just it just became a good sort of uh just sort of a good anal analogy and and it's weird because chew got really silly uh the more and i, I think that was a lot of rob's influence and uh and and it, it's been a dark year for me i think it's been a dark year for everybody and uh you know i i said that in a way so you're not expecting kind of the same tone you know yeah there will be humor but i think I think the new chew with a U is going to be a little more grounded and less, you know, less wacky than chew turned out to be. And maybe if things get better in 2021, uh, you know, I'll, I'll lighten up and the work will lighten up. But, but, you know, under Trump with a plague hitting, it's just hard to be, it, it, it's hard to be too frivolous and wacky. Like humor doesn't mm. humor, Humor's hard to do right now. Yeah, I mean, we've, we've found the same thing here, that uh, nobody can do irony because the government in reality is doing it doing it all. Yeah. You know, you can't, you yeah. can't satirize. Yeah, or, satire, yeah. or, or, or dystopian uh, futures because we live in a dystopian present. Well, I would like to personally thank you for your analogy of Breaking Bad and Better Call Saul because it is the easiest sales tool from a comic store owner perspective that I've ever had. It's... Yeah, yeah. I mean, it definitely works. I mean, it, it works in every way because you know, breaking uh, Better Call Saul definitely has a different sort of vibe and tone. You know, it's definitely got you know crossover. The difference is, I feel like the longer uh, Better Call Saul goes on, it it's uh, go getting closer and closer to Breaking Bad because it literally is chronologically. Where I feel like we are going to split off. Yeah. You know, she she it's spun out of uh of the original chew but it if it works it should you know distinguish it as its own thing increasingly and the other thing is because the first chew mostly took place in america at the end of chew you know saffron is a criminal she's on the run uh it becomes more internationally focused because i i've visited all these great places i've got all these great international publishing partners so that the next arc takes place primarily in France where the first chew book did very very well so you know why not you know bring saffron to Paris well uh, just we'll just uh, sort of start to round it off just a, a couple of final questions be very very generous for your time I mean I'm I'm a massive Batman fan so I 
I'm I'm very curious, you know, how much did you enjoy working on, you know, Detective Comics, Dark Knight, Batman Eternal? Was that like, you know, being a kid in a candy store or was it the bureaucracy of it stifled creativity or? So Mike Martz, who was my longtime Marvel editor, you know, he he was my Gambit editor and and Sentinel Squad one and and a couple other things. I mean, and we're actually friends as well. You know, we we'd get together for a meal every San Diego. He called me up one time or no. You know what happened was when Chew was really big. Uh, we were at a bar in Seattle, uh, at SeattleCon. And the, the thing with editors is people are always hitting him up for work. And he starts he starts going into the business spiel about like, well, here's what's what I'm good doing and blah, blah, blah. And I'm like, Mike, I don't give a fuck. <laughs> I, I'm not looking for work. I'm happy with you. Tell me about your dog. Tell me about your kid. You know, let's just let's just be friends. You know, this is I'm not I'm not a freelancer trying to hustle you. And I think that was refreshing for him because nearly every editor is being besieged nonstop at, at shows. So a couple months later, Mike calls me up. He's like, hey, man, I know you said you weren't looking for work, but if, if something cool fell into your lap, would you consider it? And I'm like, well, yeah, you know, you never, you know, tell me more. What, what's cool? And he's like, well, do you think Batman's cool? <laughs> and, and I'm like, holy shit. Yeah. And, and it, it never seemed real to me. Like it seemed like a giant mistake on DC's part and that I would get fired at any point. So I thought I'm going to use as much, um, as many like cool villains as I can before these guys sober up and fire me. <laughs> and so, you know, I had Clayface and, and Poison Ivy and, you know, all, all the classic villains. And then what happened was, uh, was Marvel, I mean, DC kept throwing, hey, do you want to do a Clayface special? Do you want to do a Catwoman special? Oh, we're doing the the, the 700 issue. You know, you, you got to write 50 pages. And I'm I'm not like a fast writer. I'm falling farther and farther behind on Chew. And then they asked me if I want to write Eternal. And I didn't really, like, I don't like co-writing. And they're like, yeah, you know, it's, it's four co-writers. Uh, all, all working together, and which sounds like hell to me, even though they're all you know nice guys and talented writers. But I thought I'd look like a jerk if I said no. You know, here's the here's a Batman writer being offered another Batman book, and he's not taking it. Like, how ungrateful could you be? <laughs> so I take it, thinking, well, you know what? I'll just play off stories, whatever's going on in Eternal. I'll play it off in Detective. I'll get paid twice as much for uh, one and a half times the work. Turns out it wasn't that way. You know, every time there was a page, you had every writer going back and forth. And I was getting like 85 emails a day. DC's offering me all this other stuff. Meanwhile, um, I'm falling behind on Chew. You know, Rob's not going to pay his power bill next month because I'm fucking up. And I, I don't know if I sh- should cuss. Sorry about that. Yeah, uh, <laughs> I, uh, I'm messing up and, and, you know, falling behind. And so... Basically, I kind of fired myself like, you know, look, Batman will always be there. But if, if it, you know, Chew is my dream, that's my Cerebus. And if I, you know, if I throw it away, what have I done? Because, you know, there will always be Batman writers. And um, and so I, I made the very tough decision of walking away from Batman, which, uh, you know, I, I have looked back and been like, ooh, was that a mistake? Because I, when she ended, I went back to DC and I'm like, hey, I'm ready to write Batman again. 
and they're like, wait, who are you again? Because <laughs> all my editors have left. But that being said, in the last year, I've they've been throwing me some some little stuff, which is good enough for me. Like, I, I don't need to be writing 80 pages of Batman a month, and I can't do it. But I just wrote like a Batman Plastic Man story for their holiday special, and it it scratched the itch, you know, super fun. So, anyways, I mean, we can see that there are certain uh, properties that you're a fan of, you know, particularly genre storytelling like Mars Attacks or Scarface or Red Sun, yeah. Army of Darkness or Xena. Now, you've, well, that, you've, that, that's you've... the funny thing because people don't treat Big Two like they're licensed property, but they are. And, like, I'm a huge Godzilla fan. Like, I loved writing Batman, and I it, financially, you know, it, it pays a little more, but. I got just as big a, th- a thrill writing Godzilla. And Ooh. and I tend to, you know, at this point, Chu has, has afforded me a degree of financial stability that I don't have to take any just any gig. So if I take a gig, it's going to be something I love. So even if it's something kind of stupid like Mars Attacks, I love Mars Attacks, you know? <laughs> I, you know I'm happy to write. I was wondering, now you've created your own universe is it is it still as much fun to play around in established worlds i love star trek but i would never want to write it and at one point they're like idw is like hey do you want to write like a star trek comic i'm like no not really and i i'm really good at i have learned this and again you know i'm i'm comfortable enough that i can that if it's not a good fit i say no so um uh so yeah i only seek out if it's if it's a licensed gig something I don't own, I only do it if I love it and it mm. sounds like it's going to be fun. You know, yeah. if it's a, if it's either an editor I like or a property I like or an artist I like, you know, that's or or ideally all three. <laughs> well, one Trek fan to another, are you enjoying Discovery? Oh, this yes. is the best season by far. I liked the first two seasons. I was happy it was just on, even though I had my problems with it. But now it feels like a show with a crew, and, and oh, this season's just been firing on all cylinders. God, I love it every week. 100% agree, 100% agree. Glad to hear, John. Glad to hear. So I suppose just finishing off then, you know, you're, you're obviously working on other volumes for Chew, bits and pieces, small short stories here. I just have to oh, ask, yeah. will there ever be another Poyo one-shot in the future? Yes, but it's funny because of all the books I did, the third Poyo special... I don't think was up to the rest of the quality. I mean, that was that fell right when I was doing like three DC books that month. And uh, I don't feel like that. I, I feel like there was something missing. So so Poyo left a little bit of a bad taste in my mouth but because the third special is probably my least favorite issue of of the run. That being said, everyone does love Poyo and I do have another story in there. So, yeah, it would be great if Rob and I could come back and and do that. Well, maybe uh, that's maybe that's a good thing in a way that you didn't like that issue so much because now you have this desire to go out stronger and therefore do another true. one. That's a very good point because uh, you know you literally can't win them all, and I I think there's bound to be an issue or two that isn't your favorite in in any run. So, but yeah, it, it kind of sucks that I look back on the third Poyo special and it's like I should have done better. Um, uh, so, I know exactly where, but as we are wrapping up, let, let me mention just a few other things that I I've done or doing. I did a, um, a weird tra- time travel book with aftershock this year called the, the man who effed up time. Yeah. Uh, 
about a, a basically a lab janitor who gets an opportunity to go back a week and make some changes to make up with his girlfriend, buy the winning lottery ticket. Uh, and uh, so he goes back a week, and when he comes back, there's dinosaurs walking the earth and, and tyrannosauruses and, you know, uh, samurai. And uh, it's this really kind of gonzo time travel adventure where uh, the future beliefs come to him and say, you have to repair your mess ups uh, or we're going to kill you. And so he keeps going back through time uh, trying to fix things and he makes things worse. Uh, and it's kind of uh, it's almost like a, I, I call it a, a time travel uh, mystery because you got to figure out what's actually happening. That's being collected in a few, this month or next month. Um, I've got a book called Bermuda coming out. that It's been delayed because of COVID uh, uh, with Nick Bradshaw. Uh, and it's kind of a YA book, kind of like a Commandy Tarzan book about a girl who lives on an island that's through the Bermuda Triangle. And it is unbelievably gorgeous. Like, Nick Bradshaw's work is so detailed and so crazy that like every time we get a page, I write the editor. I'm like, dude, you have to do this treasury sized. Like you can't do it standard comic book size. And then uh, because I love dumb fun, I, I've uh, been doing Mars Attacks Red Sonia, talking to Dynamite about doing more. I mean, I, I wrote I wrote 10 issues of Mars Attacks for for Dynamite. And now I mean, I'm sorry for IDW. And then a few years later, Dynamite got the uh, got the property, and now I'm writing Mars Attacks for Dynamite. And if you read them all together, like the editors don't notice, but they're all they all kind of complement <laughs> each other. So you can read the John Lehman Mars Attacks world from two different publishers, uh, and I've been having a lot of fun with that. And so the new Chew arc is uh, it's called She Drunk History. Uh, Drunk History is a popular show. Do you, mm -hmm. you guys yeah, yeah. have it? Yeah, yeah. Um, it's sort of a an alcoholic time travel art caper where where this is really going to feel more like what the new Chew book is. Like it's really going to separate itself from the uh, from the original. Uh, it's saffron in France with uh, you know some working with some wine powered criminals. So it's very alcoholic. Century <laughs> uh, High Street. Uh, to uh, and and that, that's that's another funny thing because Rob Rob and I uh, you know we we were great partners but um, we we were very different kind of people like you know we would win the Eisners and I would want to get blotto and Rob would you know drink a sip of wine to celebrate and uh, Dan Boltwood seems like he's a degenerate like uh, all he wants to do is is, is drink gin. So whenever a new issue comes out, we uh, we do a Zoom thing where we, you know, it's night for him and it's daytime for me. So I, I get all hammered in the middle of the day. Uh, but yeah, it's uh, it's very alcohol focused. So I think a lot of comic book fans will appreciate that. You'll you'll be fine if you come to Belfast, John. You'll be oh, fine. You know. Okay. Uh, can I compare you to like just the straight Irish? Because I know Northern yep. Irish. We too. have no problem okay. with that. I have traveled the world. And uh, no, nobody is quite the stereotype that that they are when you go to their country. You know, Americans have different ideas about what what people are. And uh, except in Ireland, everyone was just a, a degenerate drunk, <laughs> and, and I loved it. <laughs> Great, Jesus. 
pub on every street and uh and the organizers were just getting shit faced and getting everyone shit faced and it was uh it was the best time <laughs> well uh, i gotta say the uh, my favorite thing about this interview was hearing chew creator john layman say something left a bad taste in his mouth <laughs> yeah the the food puns never stop with chew that's for damn sure <laughs> Awesome. Well, thank you so much for your time, John. You know, it, it genuinely is a, yeah. a pleasure to chat to to a creator who had genuinely a profound impact on my on my own comic reading and introduced me to the indie world. It makes me feel old though when you're like, "This is when I started comics," and I was like, "Oh, <laughs> good lord!" I'd been you know toiling for fifteen years at that point, or maybe twelve. <laughs> Well, the thing with Chew is it's proven a very expensive habit for me because, you know, obviously once the TV news comes along and, you know, people jump on the secondary market and so forth, my my other half once very kindly got me a first print Chew number one for my birthday. Oh, because is, I'd read... Now, the, is it signed? It's not signed, no. It's, uh, but it was basically... Well, that's I'd read, why you got to get me to Belfast. Very much so. I have the copy ready and waiting, but... Yeah, I read the first two arcs in, in trades and then loved it so much I jumped on the singles. But now I have the smorgasbord editions. I have them remarked by Rob. Chew has proven very expensive for me, I have to say. Now, have you met Rob? <laughs> no, no. It's uh, they, they offer them through Diamond Comic Distributors. You can buy them as signed and remarked by. Um, so there's just a little sketch in each Wait, one. Wait, is that the one with the, uh, the tip-in sheets? Because I think you've got my signature in there too, if it's the what I'm thinking. Yeah, I think you've got my signature in there I too. Think, I think you are indeed, right, yeah. sir? Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's the uh, the signed and limited edition. There you do. You don't need to come to Belfast anymore. Look at that. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, no, genuinely an absolute pleasure when you you get to chat to someone who whose work you you enjoy so much. So, um, well, I you know, appreciate the kind words. And Chew is very much a stalwart title for us. You know, we we have this thing in store where certain titles are always on the shelf. As soon as one sells, it gets replaced. You know, Saga is one of the. That has been the great thing about Chew is it. It's got this evergreen thing, and it's also got a viral thing where a lot of people like, oh, you don't read comics, try Chew. Yeah. Uh, you know, I, I would say why is like that too, and, and uh, it, you know, we found a lot of uh, you know a lot of female audience. I mean, uh, uh, you know, you can you can give Chew, you can give Chew to to really to anybody yeah uh and it, it really has helped i mean i've met so many people who have passed it along to a significant other or a you know a coworker or whatever and I, i've been uh really lucky in that regard because uh it, it wasn't intentional yeah well that's it that's how we introduce new readers to comics in our store we don't direct them to the big two we always go straight to the indie bookshelf ask what type of movie they like and then find an a, a, a sort of appropriate title based on that way but yeah, choose one of those stalwart titles for us alongside Saga, Y, Preacher, The Boys, Transmet, everything. So it's it's always oh, on our shelves. Why is he selling like crazy now with that Amazon series? It's pretty hard keeping it in stock, I, I will admit. <laughs> Which, you guys are watching that, right? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Absolutely. Oh, I'm so happy for Derek. I mean, uh, uh, the show is so good. Uh, Derek's been a friend of mine forever. So, so to see... I mean, I think it was Amazon's number one show for a while. Mm-hmm. So, you know, really happy for his success. And uh, and written by a man from Northern Ireland, no less. Yes, that's true. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I don't know if I've said this. Uh, Preacher is my all-time favorite comic book. Wow. 
there you go. High, pri- high praise indeed. So yeah, guys, so obviously if you've listened to this, if you've missed out on Chew, you've never uh, come to that world for whatever reason, always in store, uh, always in stock, I should say, in the store. And if you missed out on Chew, C-H-U, uh, Volume 1's coming out on January 20th, 2021 for the frankly ridiculous price of $9.99 or yeah, nine, really £9. Like uh and image is like look it's it's the plague you know you know do the customers a favor people aren't exactly rolling in money right now and it's like yeah okay it's also such a great selling point you know because instead of spending you know 20 the equivalent say of 20 dollars on a book that you might not like you'll give yeah. a book a chance for 10 dollars i think a lot quicker than 20 yeah. so and I, it, it's really the uh the schoolyard drug dealer uh, a, <laughs> a little taste a little taste first one free kid and then uh and then you get a uh, yeah <laughs> john i feel like we could i feel like we could chat to you all night uh but we don't want to take up any more of your time all right uh, you've been fantastically fantastically generous it's been an absolute pleasure chatting to you uh and uh, and, and just thanks very much for uh sure. for coming on let, and, uh, let me know when this airs and i'll uh retweet it and all that sort of stuff certainly well john thank you very much for your time sir it's been a pleasure all right guys